When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies, like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. This was one of my discoveries. She was actually asked by the Nobel Academy to um, not come to accept the Nobel Prize because it would embarrass the king. Uh, And she wrote back, I have always believed that my the Nobel Prize was being given for my scientific work and my private life had nothing to do with it. And she went and accepted the Nobel Prize. That was author Susan Quinn talking about Marie Curie, the first person ever to be honored with two Nobel Prizes, one for physics in 1903 and the second one for chemistry in 1911. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. Marie Curie is one of the most famous scientists in history. As has been noted, she discovered polonium and radium, championed the use of radiation in medicine, and fundamentally changed our understanding of radioactivity. To get a picture of who Marie Curie really was, we talked to Susan Quinn, author of the award-winning biography, Marie Curie, A Life. Listen and learn why Marie Curie is one of Seneca's 100 women to hear. I'm here today with Susan Quinn, renowned author, and we're going to be talking about the great woman scientist, Marie Curie. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, you certainly had a a worthy subject in your book, Marie Curie, A Life. Uh, Let's talk about her a little bit. How is she best remembered, and what were her greatest contributions to science? I think she's best remembered as a courageous woman scientist at a time when that was a very difficult role to have in life and uh, surmounted great obstacles um, in her life. 
Um, I certainly think her greatest contribution to science was her discovery of radioactivity. Uh, her discoveries of the um, of the elements first polonium. She named her first discovery of an element uh, polonium after her native Poland, and second radium are often um, cited as her great discoveries. But what was even more important than those discoveries of elements and others later on was the underlying discovery that um, the elements are in a constant state of transformation and that radioactivity is the reason. And uh, others went on then to really understand the nature of the structure of the atom and of the nucleus. And that came out of her discoveries, which she shares really importantly with Pierre Curie, her, her husband and partner. So in writing your award-winning biography, what were some of the most inspiring and surprising things you learned about her? I came to this biography having read uh, her daughter Eve Curie's biography, Madame Curie, which I've since learned was read by many, many young women. I was very inspired by that book. I actually quoted it in my high school graduation speech. Uh, But um, having been out in the world and writing about women, um, I began to suspect that that biography was really an only partial version of of her life. And uh, that turned out to be very much true. Um, My great discovery in the process of working on this book was that her life did not end when Pierre Curie was tragically killed. He he was run over by a horse and cart in the streets of Paris and died in 1906, not long, only a few years after he and Marie Curie won their Nobel Prize, their first Nobel Prize. She won another later. So he died in 1906, and um, Eve Curie's book portrays that as kind of the end of her romantic life, and in some ways, the film based on the book made it kind of the end of her life. She's often portrayed as kind of a tragic, grieving widow from then on, but she lived on for a lot of years until 1934, and Not long after Pierre died, she formed a relationship with his best friend, Pierre Langevin, um, and uh, Paul Langevin. And Paul Langevin was an unhappily married man who was very, very conflicted and, and, and shared a lot of that with Marie. And she was this grieving widow. And they fell in love. And they had a a love affair which became a great scandal in France. And one of the things I discovered in the course of working on the book was that Eve Curie had written her book quickly and in large part because she wanted to tell the story her way and she wanted to not tell that story. But I discovered that story to be really evidence of Marie Curie's great courage. Um, And it it became this huge scandal because there were love uh, letters discovered by your Paul Langevin's wife and all the scandal sheets then attacked Marie Curie um, as a foreign woman and uh, a woman who was destroying a French household. All kinds of xenophobic attitudes and hostile attitudes toward her came out 
largely, I feel, and I argue in my book, because uh, she was this prominent and successful woman. Um, it was not shocking at all for French men to have a love affair, but for her to have a love affair was shocking. And she won a second Nobel Prize in 1911, and was that was exactly at the time of this great scandal. And she was actually, this was one of my discoveries, she was actually asked by the Swedish Academy, by the Nobel Academy, to um, not come to accept the Nobel Prize because it would embarrass the king. Uh, and she wrote back, I have always believed that my the Nobel Prize was being given for my scientific work and my private life had nothing to do with it. And she went and accepted the Nobel Prize. Uh, her sister came from Poland to support her. Uh, but it was a very difficult experience and traumatic experience for her. And she was unwell afterwards for a year. So that story um, became a very powerful story for me. and. <clears throat> one that I felt was not scandalous or shocking, but but really evidence of her her courage. And one of the numerous times she had to overcome a hostility um, that, uh, of uh, the established uh, scientists in France towards a, a, a successful woman. She also applied to become a member of the French uh, Academy of Science and was rejected. Uh, never. This is a woman who you know won two Nobel prizes. So she um, was um, a very brave woman and uh, tremendously strong, and she had this rich, full life, and that was part of it. It's just fascinating uh, to listen to you describe uh, what she was up against, and it's not the first time, of course, that we know about double standards that affect uh, women uh, so differently from men. So she's in the science field. Uh, that in and of itself was uh, not the most obvious place for a woman to get her start uh, in a profession. You mentioned that she had to overcome many obstacles, including the obstacles later in life. But what did she have to overcome to get into science in the first place? I think uh, a lot. <laughs> she was Polish, uh, grew up in Warsaw in a family of teachers. They were really uh, they came from the gentry, but they had they were impoverished because of the oppressive rule of the Russian Tsar. So she grew up under uh, 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 the rule of the Tsars, which uh, forbid young people in school from speaking their native language Polish. They had to do that in secret. Um, she grew up in a passionately patriotic. A family that was very much, they were very much Polish patriots who recited Polish poetry at home and had this other public life that they had to maintain. So she learned about resisting authority early on. Uh, she and her best friend used to, on their way to school every day, they used to pass a monument to the Russian Tsars and they would spit on it. Uh, so she, she had, you know, this kind of spirit. She was the youngest in the family. They were all uh, interested in science, and their father taught science. And or she would say that they they would go to look at a sunset, and he would explain to them what caused the sunset. You know, he was always teaching. So she had this uh, a background of, of 
intellectual family and curiosity, and she was a great student from early on. But they had no money. And secondly, there was no place to go to university in Poland for women. Um, so um, the only options were either to go to Russia or to go to Paris. And many, many Poles went to Paris, but not that many women. But however, her sister, Bronya, went to Paris and they they formed a pact. Bronya went first. And while she was studying and she became a doctor, Maria stayed behind in Poland and worked as a governess under really difficult circumstances out in the country, um, isolated, uh, and um, endured that for a number of years, saved her money. And then when Bronya had finished, um, she supported Bronya. And when Bronya was finished, Maria went off to Paris to study. So she already had to overcome being a foreigner and uh, learning science and math and everything that she learned in a second language, although she was a wonderful linguist. Um, and then, of course, she had to overcome uh, the, the attitudes all around her about about women. And she, she was uh, one of the few, one of the few women at the Sorbonne uh, studying at the Sorbonne, she graduated at the top of her class in in uh, physics one year, and then the next year in mathematics. And that was around the time that she met Pierre. She had the good luck of meeting a, a, a very supportive and loving man who um, helped out with taking care of children and all the concerns of the household. And, and his, of course, his death was was just a devastating blow that she had to over overcome. Also, um, and there was a period when she wrote in her journal that she didn't want to go on living because uh, she was so bereft. So there was a lot, a lot to overcome. And then I think uh, one of the, one of the reasons that she became very she became very involved. In the effort uh, during World War One, well, she really thought up the idea, in fact, of going to the front during World War One with X-ray mobiles. They were essentially cars fitted out with X-ray equipment, which was a very new, a very new thing. And she and a team of people she trained went out in these X-ray mobiles, and they were able then to X-ray soldiers right close to the front and very quickly, and it saved many lives. And I think that uh, the motivation for that was, of course, her patriotism, her caring. And she considered herself not just Polish, but French. But I also think it was a way of uh, sort of rehabilitating herself and her her reputation after the scandal of the Longina affair. So once again, uh, overcoming, amazingly overcoming it great obstacles. And she had two children, two girls that she raised, both of whom grew up into amazing adults. And of course, her, her daughter, Irene, became a scientist and herself won the Nobel Prize with her husband, Pierre Joliot. And then the other daughter wrote the book, Madame Curie, but she was also in the resistance. She was a, a, a concert pianist and an amazing woman who lived well past 100. Uh, so, uh, a remarkable life in just a lot of ways. Yeah, and the more the more that uh, you share that with us, uh, the more remarkable she 
is, obviously, uh, from what I guess most of us know about her, uh, which aren't these kinds of of details. Uh, clearly very resilient as well. When she met Pierre, had she intended at that point to go back and live in Poland, or was she comfortable staying in France? Oh, she very much intended to go back to Poland. And she she writes to one of her friends, her Polish women friends, you know, that she she feels terrible about not going back. Her her sister Bronya went back and founded the sanitar- TB sanitarium, um, and that um, uh, that was really I think grew out of the fact that uh, they lost their mother to t- tuberculosis and a sister when they were young. Uh, yet another loss in her life. So anyway, she was very committed to still to the Polish cause and wanted to go back uh, as a scientist to Poland. And then uh, she said in this letter, but then I met him and we became attached to each other and we couldn't live without each other. So what was I to do? It feels like it was a, it was a genuine conflict for her. But um, because of Pierre, she stayed in France. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. And then you had mentioned uh, her resisting authority as a child growing up in a very Polish nationalistic household at a time when Poland was part of the Russian Empire under the Tsarist authority. She belonged to a revolutionary group as a student. What did that revolutionary group do? And perhaps what did that say about her, her own views, her own um, determination? It was came naturally in this family. I mean, her mother had been a teacher in a school, a private school that, that she attended, and they had um, two curricula. One was for the every day, and the other was for the day the Russian inspectors came. And on that day, 
you know, no Polish was spoken and no Polish history was dealt with. But on the other days, it was. So it did come naturally. She, she as a because there was no um, higher education for women in Poland, she was part of something called a flying university, which was a, a an organization of, of women who met and studied together secretly. I'd say her her sympathies were definitely with. Uh, Polish nationalism, uh, her kind of focus was definitely on on finding a way to to get education for herself and uh, to you know contribute through that that way. Let's go forward a little bit to the time when she has to make her way uh, without her husband after his death when he was killed in the road accident that you mentioned. She is able to assume the position he had as professor of general physics at the University of Paris. Mm-hmm. She became the first woman, I understand, to hold this position. What was she like in that role? What was she like as a leader? How was that transition for her? She hated all the public acclaim and attention and fuss. She always did, and and there was some, and she suffered miserably from that because after they won the Nobel Prize together um, in 1903, she and Pierre they became a kind of an item. This was, be, you know, in some ways, this was the positive side of of, of public acclaim. Later, she got the negative side, um, and it it helped them um, to get a lab, um, but. It also interfered with their work because everybody wanted to interview everybody in the family, including as Pierre complained at one point, they even want to interview our cat. You know? <laughs> and and uh, they both hated it, hated it. Uh, so, but then she was, yeah, the first uh, woman to teach at the Sorbonne. And it, it was also a pu- big publicity event. You know, people came to, to sit in the balcony and all in their, uh, and, and, uh, and to watch this event as a teacher, I think she was, I think she was probably very down to earth and matter of fact, um, as she would have been very well prepared. Um, and, uh, I, I, there was one, I really don't know about exactly what her style was in, in the classroom, but I know that she, she had actually for a little while, she and some of her scientist friends took their children out of school regular school and taught them and uh she was um very good at at uh teaching young children with um hands-on experiments you had mentioned that her life went on in many ways uh she achieved even greater distinction in some ways got a second nobel prize after her husband's death but it must have been hard for her to make that transition from working so closely with him, being a co-researcher with him, and then moving into uh, working alone? Oh, it was very hard. Uh, she, um, After he died, she kept a diary, uh, which was really a uh, very important. Dis- it had been there, but no one else had kind of used it as I did in my biography. But she wrote to in her diary as though he were still alive. And she addressed him in these a long series of, of letters, and she described the lab and coming back to the lab and bringing some flowers from the country where they'd been together and writing that the flowers are 
alive than you are. And how is that possible? So her her grief was was e- immense, um, but her way of dealing with grief was to go to work. And she was a very hard worker. I mean, her whole isolation of radium in the beginning and radioactivity involved reducing this large quantities of pitch blend into a very much, much, much smaller quantity in order to get this radioactive effect. So she, her lab grew and her fame grew and she focused on her work, you know, uh, and of course she had the comfort for a while of the affair with Paul Langevin, but mostly, mostly she worked and her children attest to that. Eve, whom I, Eve Curie, whom I interviewed, talked about uh, her mother's complete obsession with the lab and with her work. You know, that was, that was her life and it was her salvation really. So you mentioned um, her daughter, who uh, one especially was so involved in her research efforts with her. What was their relationship like? Very close, playful, uh, loving. But her daughter, Irene, was also like her, all business. So, but we have some letters that they exchanged. She became her daughter became really first thing she became involved in was the X-ray mobiles. And she, Uren, went on her own in, in an X-ray mobile to the Belgian front, and she writes back to her mother. And we have some of those letters back and forth. But they were very involved in each other's work. And when Uren and her husband Pierre Joliot made their great discovery of artificial radioactivity, they, the first person to come and see their successful experiment was their mother, was Marie Curie. Uh, so she was deeply involved in her daughter's work. So she dies really at an early age in some ways, in her 60s, mid-60s, I think. And she died from anemia, which had to do with her exposure to radioactivity. Is that the case? Yes. That has been pretty much the conclusion and uh, the one that I went along with in my book. But I've since... Um, talked with some people in the field of of, um, of uh, radioactive exposure who think that that uh, her work actually on the X-ray mobiles and her exposure to X-rays may have been actually more harmful than her work in the laboratory. But the combination of things, there can be no doubt, um, contributed to her anemia and her relatively early death. Uh, and uh, evidence of that is that her Daughter Irene also died fairly young, and Eve, the daughter who didn't work in the lab, lived to over 100. So uh, I think, you know, probably had they not been exposed to the radioactive elements that they worked with, both both uh, Marie and her daughter, Irene, might have lived longer lives. So she was clearly remarkable in so many ways. What lessons can we take from her life? What lessons do you take from her life? Well, stick up for yourself Mm -hmm. (laughs) and for your work, I would say. I mean, I think that that letter she writes where she says, I've always felt the Nobel Prize was being given for my work and my personal life had nothing to do with it. And um, don't allow the kind of double standard that's operated in the past to be inflicted on you as a woman. I think that's, hopefully it's less likely to happen now, but it still happens and we still have different expectations. Uh, 
you know, I think uh, it was Elizabeth Warren who said um, uh, recently, you know, just remember, you know, being forceful is not a good look. Well, and it's it's an important uh, lesson to today. So we can learn about her own resilience and stick to if you will. Marching forward uh, to uh, 2020, which is considerably marching forward from these times, uh, women were awarded Nobel Prizes last year in both chemistry and physics. Yes. Uh, how do you think uh, Madame Curie paved the way for those accomplishments? Well, I think I'm sure those women would tell you that she was inspiring to them. Um, I think we could also ask, why did it take so long? Indeed. And, uh, you know, there were a number of uh, earlier um, instances of women who should have been recognized and weren't. I mean, uh, Rosalind Franklin comes to mind and Lisa Meitner. Uh, so um, um, Marie Curie's align- having being part of a relationship really probably is what allowed her to be given the Nobel Prize because the first time um, there was the possibility a nomination, Pierre was nominated alone, and he wrote to them and said, "For reasons of symmetry, don't you think it would be good to have to, to award the Nobel Prize to Marie and me both?" So he stuck up for her, and the following year she was named along with Pierre and Henri Becquerel. So. Uh, so I think one of the reasons that was possible was because of Pierre, this ally she had, and because she was a part of a part of a partnership with a man. So it took a long time, too long. I'm very glad these women have both been recognized, but there were others who should have been and weren't. Well, she certainly was pioneering, and um, it's good to know, albeit so so late uh, in coming uh, that we are making at least a modicum of progress in in this regard. Um, Susan, this has been a fascinating conversation, just learning so much about Marie Curie. I know before we close, I I do want to ask you about uh, the book. I think it's uh, Eleanor and Hick. You want to tell us about that? Yes. It's called Eleanor and Hick, The Love Affair That Shaped a First Lady. And it's the story of Eleanor Roosevelt's romantic relationship with a journalist named Lorena Hickok. Um, and uh, it, it was, uh, it, it's a very, it's a very um, touching story, I would say, of a, a romance that lasted maybe four or five years. And then for Lorena Hickok lasted for a lifetime. She, and, and uh, the friendship, went on until until Eleanor Roosevelt died. Um, and Lorena Hickok really did help Eleanor Roosevelt to find a way to be a new kind of first lady, um, independently um, have a relationship with the press and uh, write about her life in her column, My Day. Those were things that wouldn't have happened without uh, Lorena Hickok. So that's that's that book. Well, you keep uh, putting out interesting stories uh, about historical figures, uh, and we're just so grateful to you to have had this chance to learn more uh, through you about uh, Marie Curie today. Thank you so much, Susan Quinn. 
Thank you. There's so much more to Marie Curie than I ever knew, thanks to Susan Quinn. Here are three things I took from that conversation. First, Marie Curie was strong enough to stand up to anyone who would hold her back because she was a woman. She was asked not to go to Sweden to accept the Nobel Prize because she'd been having an affair and that would embarrass the king. She refused and picked up her prize in person. Second, her vision went beyond the laboratories where she made her great discoveries. During World War I, she came up with the idea of creating mobile X-ray units that could be moved easily to the front lines, saving time and many lives. Finally, the challenges Marie Curie overcame remain an inspiration for women in science today, and her singularity is a reminder of all the women scientists who didn't gain recognition. Women like Rosalind Franklin, a pioneer in DNA research, and physicist Lisa Meitner. Women are finally winning Nobels in science, but as Susan Quinn asks, what took so long? Tune in next Thursday to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.